Welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, sponsored by Munters, experts in climate control systems for safe, high-quality battery cell production and R&D, delivering stable, low dew point conditions whilst minimising energy use. Episode 15, Developments in Cathode Technology. At the core of any battery is the cathode the positive electrode where reduction or the gain of electrons takes place. Responsible for a major part of the overall material cost of a battery, cathodes determine to a large degree battery performance. And as we seek to enhance battery performance, innovations in the cathode space will provide much of that progress. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Copley. He's the Research and Development Director at FAN to discuss all things cathode, from basic principles to the next generation of cathode materials. Today we're talking all things on the cathode side of battery electrochemistry, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Mark Copley, who's the Research and Development Director of FAM. We're based in Terrarola in Italy. FAM specialise in the production of cells and modules and batteries. So welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, Mark. Thanks a lot, Ken. As you say, I'm R&D director here at FAM. Been here for three months and uh, getting used to life in the south of Italy. Uh, previous to that, I was chief engineer at WMG at the University of Warwick, looking at all things uh, battery materials and processing. And uh, I was there for four years. Previous to that, I spent uh, just over 12 years in Johnson Matthey, uh, looking at, again at all things more battery materials, focused uh, specifically on LFP and LTO uh, as the division grew in JM and uh, very much supporting that through EU and UK projects. So pleasure to be here today and to talk about cathodes. Uh, We're the first gigafactory in Italy and Southern Europe, and we're very much focused on the development of LFP graphite uh, cells. And um, I suppose one thing of note, uh, what we're doing, we're looking at aqueous processing, both on the cathode and on the anode side. That's interesting. We'll definitely come back to that in terms of the aqueous processing. So let's start at the very beginning. Give us a a brief synopsis, if you could, Mark, in terms of how does a cathode work? What's its role in a battery? What I'd say, a cathode is kind of, your cathode and anode, positive and negative in the battery. On the cathode, it basically holds a cache of lithium. Uh, essentially, it's that lithium that gives the battery uh, its power and capacity. And what you want to do is to uh, repeatedly move that cache of lithium from the cathode to the anode and back again with minimum strain or loss. And you've many different types of cathode materials then that you can use to do that. And there are pros and cons of the different cathodes. Right, which we'll come to hopefully in a bit more detail. In the charging phase and the discharging phase of a battery, can you just talk me through how the ions are moving between the cathodes and the anodes? Basically, you have movement of the ions out of the structure. Some can have 1D, 2D, or 3D kind of pathways to move out. Say the lithium iron phosphate that we work with is is 1D. So it has that kind of singular channel where the lithium can move out and can move back into it, what they call a, a moving front, where there's a bit of a phase change. And yeah. as you move the lithium, you can have this 
phase change, which can sometimes have a volume change associated and that can affect lifetime, etc. The lithium ions will then be transported through the electrolyte, which separates um, cathode and anode, and there's normally a separator in there as well. And you have conductive pathways which they can move through. And typically you have graphite on the anode side and the lithium ions will then intercalate into the layers in the graphite. So that has the correct spacing between them to allow lithium to intercalate. Right. And just to pick up that final terminology you use in there, this this intercalation process, if I understand it correctly, though, please correct me, is is the ability for like the, those ions, if you like, to find space within the lattice structure without changing the fundamental chemistry of the of the host material. Correct. I think it'd be useful for me to get an appreciation of the kind of materials which are being used generally in cathodes and and what dictates a good material that is used, if you like, in, in cathodes. And we can go from there. It's, it's always debatable as to what's good, but uh, it depends on the standpoint that you're at. So essentially, you have the olivine structured materials, which are the phosphates, the lithium iron phosphate. That tends to have a lower capacity than a lot of the other things that I'll mention, but uh, brings a lot of safety and has a lot of uh, power capability uh, as a cathode material. One that a lot of fleet automotive would be using are what's called um, the NMC or NCM. Some people move the nomenclature around the place, which are the nickel manganese cobalt oxide uh, cathode materials, which are basically layered oxide type structures. And you can play around with the ratio of the elements in there. Uh, when it first kind of arised on the market, it was a 1-1-1. So the transition metals were in equal ratio. Uh, the tendency over the last number of years has been to increase the amount of nickel and to try and decrease the amount of cobalt. Obviously, cobalt uh, is an element that's a bit difficult <laughs> to get your hands on and also is quite expensive, so it brings a lot of cost. Um, now, I would say academically and maybe some people in terms of production are looking at materials that are 90% nickel, 5% um, cobalt, 5% uh, manganese to try and maximize the nickel. With these materials, yes, you get more capacity from them, so I think initially you're talking about 160 milliamp per hour per gram uh, for a 111. And now we're all the way up to about 220 milliamp per hour per gram. So quite a, an increase in terms of capacity. Um, and that's a good thing in terms of energy density or specific energy density of the cell. But you're giving up safety somewhat as you move upwards in the nickel for these materials. And that's just something that people have to be um, conscious of when using them, that uh, the battery management systems and things like this have to be a lot more considerate of the element that you have in there. So yes, that one is definitely a lot of tendency to go for the higher nickel. And I believe the automotive industry now quite likes the 622 nickel uh, cobalt manganese and 532 are quite common, uh, even though I suppose in academia, people are always talking about 811 and above. Uh, purely to be able to talk about higher numbers. One other area to touch on would be the more high volt type of cathode, the um, spinel 
type, type structure, this would be uh, lithium manganese oxide or lithium nickel manganese oxide. Uh, these materials have an operating voltage quite high, up around 4.8 volts. Um, at the moment, they're not exploited commercially, not, not really, uh, because there isn't the electrolytes that are stable at these voltages. So with, with all of the cathode materials, you're normally looking at the capacity. So when I was talking about milliamp per hour per gram, the voltage that they operate at and the density that you can achieve in the electrode, they're the parameters that really give you your overall energy density. Yeah. The thing, things like lithium iron phosphate, they operate at about um, 3.25-ish volts in, in terms of in a full cell. Um, the NMCs are closer to 4.1, 4.2. And then, as I said, the spinels are up at 4.7. So you think about them as a multiplying factor. That's quite a difference. Uh, even if the capacity can change around in terms of the milliamp per hour per gram, if you're multiplying by three or five, that's a big differentiator. So I think there are a few companies out there that are looking at these high volt materials, because if you can crack that type of problem, the kind of oxidation of the electrolyte, uh, I think you would have an instant competitor with anything solid-state battery uh, in, in that area where people are kind of seeing that as a bit of a holy grail. So I'll probably be corrected by people, but as a, a general guide, I think that's kind of three good classes of cathode materials to discuss. Just to clarify the difference in performance between LFP and NMC, uh, yeah. if I understand that correctly, NMC is a, is a significant advantage in terms of its performance characteristics why would anyone use lfp then if if N, if nmc if you like has got has got those built-in uh performance improvements yep uh lfp is an inherently safer material because of the phosphate bonds the to break that phosphorus oxygen bond takes an awful lot of energy so it, it really is safer it has very good uh, capacity retention as a function of increased discharge rate. So you can develop a very good cell, very little loss as you move up through the, the rate of charging or discharging. And uh, it's a lot cheaper to manufacture, probably <laughs> in there as well. It, it, it's it, You've got different routes, you can complicate it if you want to, but uh, it, it is more straightforward than the NMC type materials. And I think lifetime will be longer as well. When you're dealing with transition elements, uh, transition metal elements, you can get movement uh, of it and you start to lose uh, capacity, voltage fade, maybe something that you've, you've heard of in the past. It's as the, you start to get a lack or a slight loss of structure or that movement uh, of some of the transition elements into lithium uh, sites, you lose the capacity and you also, the voltage starts to drop off. So that affects your energy as well. I understand that. And just one final thing, just for me to understand. You mentioned that difference in energy density performance between mm -hmm. LFP and NMC. Does that play out in terms of weight issues in the sense of, is one battery type inherently heavier per unit of measure than the other, or are they, are they pretty much similar? I'd have to get a pen and paper <laughs> to be completely certain with you, but I don't think there's a, a significant difference. What, one thing I forgot to mention previously, too, is with 
LFP and the NMC class of materials is when it comes to cell format. Uh, again, it goes back to the safety. In any battery, because it's the weight comment uh, that you made there, Ken, you can only go to such a high loading uh, with some of the NMC materials, how many loops or wraps, whatever type of format you want. So you may have heard of things like the BY, BYD blade uh, yeah. and, and things like that, where you can really increase, or sorry, minimize almost, sorry, <laughs> I meant increase the amount of LFP uh, to inert material in there. So y you can maximize the amount of cathode material in. So excess packaging, um, burst plates, uh, separators, the thinness that you can go to, all, all of this can be maximized in favor of the chemistry that you have inside there. Whereas you, you can't go to those form factors with the NMC due to the safety protocols uh, and the inherent lack of safety with those materials. Thanks for listening to the Battery Technology Podcast. We're very pleased that you've joined us. And as we go into 2024, we've got a lot of new episodes in the pipeline featuring some outstanding guests. And we're going to try to release episodes on a fortnightly basis, which is a bit quicker than 2023, simply because we've got so much to go through. And please, if you have the opportunity, subscribe, maybe leave us a review. That really helps other people find the Battery Technology Podcast. And listenership is growing rapidly with every episode now getting about 25% more downloads than the one that preceded it. And of course, if there's a particular development that you wish to highlight, please let me know. We're always interested in hearing about the latest advances. My contact details are always in the show notes that accompany each episode. And now let's get back to this fascinating conversation. Brilliant. Thank you for that. That's a really, really good explanation. So, so they're, they're the three main cathode material types, if you like. One of the things I'd be really interested in understanding in a bit more detail is the manufacturing process. PCAM, CAM, how the whole things fit together, the kind of processes that a cathode goes through from base materials all the way through to an operating cathode. So, good of you to kind of just explain that to to me the layman the layman with a chemistry degree okay. but still a layman <laughs> okay again if okay with you i'll split it into lfp i can talk a bit about the synthesis there and nmc in in general terms so yes, lfp is um I, I always like to say it's one of these materials as a bulk material, it's useless. And as a nanomaterial, it's just slightly less useless. <laughs> so you have to get a bit more clever with it. But in terms of synthesis, you could probably put all the precursors together, hit them with a hammer and you might come out with it. Um, mm -hmm. in, in normal route, you would use either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, which most of the mining companies now, that's what they will deliver out. They, they all want to come a bit further downstream than just ore. So you can use that. Then you could use iron phosphate uh, itself, and you would mix slash mill that together with the lithium precursor uh, to get it to a particle size distribution that you want. Uh, you will have to put some form of a carbon precursor in with it as well. And then you would heat treat, calcine that in an inert atmosphere, and you would yeah. end up with a carbon-coated nanomaterial 
uh, that should work <laughs> pretty decently as a lithium iron phosphate cathode material. Can I just ask what, what the role is of the carbon in that? You mentioned... You end up with um, a carbon coating on the LFP, which gives it the electronic conductivity, which it doesn't have in and of itself, which goes back to my earlier comment about you have to gotcha. go nano to get it a little better. With the carbon coating, it, it goes a step better again. And you can play around with that carbon coating um, all day. Uh, uh, the better it is, the better your material will perform. So people have looked at graphene, carbon nanotubes, mixed. Um, so it might use some form of a glucose, sucrose, uh, fructose is even used uh, as a precursor mixed with multi-wall carbon nanotubes, and you can put that down as a coating. Now, what, what's the point there of, of, of changing the the different choices of carbon there? Is, is it about surface area? You know, what, what's the, uh, what, what's the, what's the goal there? I would say scale length if you're mixing your carbons. So if you're putting carbon nanotube in, you see that's very much on the nano and you have a slightly larger, you know, when you bulk carbon, then it's that helping the conductivity, different scale lengths uh, through it. Uh, looking at different ones, it's how clean a decomposition you can get from the precursor to a carbon and what temperature that will happen at, as that will have an economic effect in terms of synthesis. In terms of the main LFP, lithium iron phosphate part of it itself, even I was saying you could take iron phosphate as a precursor. You can also go a step further back and you could use iron and phosphoric acid. You react that to get the iron phosphate and then you go on stepwards from there. You can do it multiple ways, hydrothermal, the solvothermal, precipitation. It really lends itself to many different synthesis routes on the LFP side. On the NMC, you are looking at your precursors generally being nickel, manganese, cobalt sulfates. Uh, again, you're looking at a hydroxide or a carbonate on the lithium side. Normally, once you go above a 622, so nickel uh, 60%, once you go above that, people tend to use the hydroxide as the precursor uh, because that has um, a slightly, it has a lower decomposition temperature and when you go above 60% nickel, you're able to get the desired phase at a slightly lower temperature. So again, it's economics for the, the cathode manufacturers. So normally, you get what you were calling the pre-cam earlier would be the non-lithiated layered oxide. So you react mm -hmm. the, the nickel, manganese, and cobalt uh, precursors. Then that is mixed, uh, milled with the, the lithium precursor and fired. Some people look at putting advanced coatings on the surface to give stability against electrolyte and potential. And obviously with all of these uh, materials, both the LFP and the NMC, you have people doping to add extra structural support or conductivity pathways, be that for lithium conductivity or electronic into the materials as well. So nobody is selling uh, NMC only or an LFP only. Everyone is putting in little bits of magic. The secret sauce. Yes, exactly. Right, I understand that. And presumably then these are all applied to an aluminium foil as a current uh, Yes, yes, yeah. Um, so again, there's plenty of magic goes in at this point as well. So current technology is batch mixing of slurry. So you normally use uh, N-methylpyrrolidone, NMP is the, the solvent of choice. Um, you're looking at the cathode material, LFP, NMC. 
Uh, you're also going to have some form of a binder in there. If you're working with NMP, it'll be a PVDF in terms of binder system. And you'll have yeah. a conductive carbon additive in there uh, to, again, help with the conductive pathways. I suppose academics would look at ratios like 90% carbon, uh, 5% binder, 5% conductive carbon additive. In real-world production, you would want over 96% cathode material in there. Generally, these are all added together or in sequence, uh, mixed in planetary mixers, normally with high shear. Uh, for a number of hours and then checked for what size, particulate size, what type of viscosity, whether people are doing slot dye deposition onto the aluminium or reverse comma bar or the two kind of common ways of doing it. Um, which carbon additive, which binder they add make a big difference. Again, people are looking at single wall carbon nanotubes, graphene, multi-walled instead of just a carbon black at that point. And that then is deposited down onto your aluminium dried calendared and away into cells. Technology is starting to change as well now where people are starting to look at continuous processes. So you're able to make the slurry on demand. Whereas at the moment with a batch process, if you're looking at a new material, you might use up to a ton at production level to dial in your system. So if it's the first time uh, looking at a new cathode material, you will probably use a ton of material just to get it right. If you're working on a continuous type technology, which extruder type technology, imagine, uh, then you can change that on the fly. So if you're not happy with it, you can adjust that. The problem is kind of going from continuous straight to production. A lot of people would prefer to go continuous to a pot, carry out QC in the pot, and then go to production. Ultimately, people want to be able to process these slurries dry. So that's kind of really the direction people are going. So there's no solvent in there. There's no solvent has to be removed, so there's no heating really needed. So there's a large amount of economic saving on processing your cathode into an electrode. And now, a word from a sponsor. If you want to produce more high-quality batteries in a more sustainable and cost-effective way, and bring down costs in energy-intensive operations, such as drying and dry room, your selection is Visala. The world-class measurement provider with technologically best-suited products for ultra-dry conditions. Visit visala.com slash battery. A couple of things I just wanted to come, come back to. Uh, you mentioned in the work you're doing at FAM, you're, this is an aqueous process. Yes. And uh, we've just been talking a lot there about solvents. And I just, I just want to... Yep. I just want to understand, if you like, are you talking about replacing those kind of solvents with an aqueous solution? Yep. Yeah, we're, we're looking at uh, swapping out for the NMP for water, the ionized water. It means we have to change our binder system to be that which will work well in a, in a water system. Um, also, we have to be careful about the stability of the slurry, that there isn't any leaching uh, from the cathode into water, so pH is very important as well. But ultimately, we think NMP is one of these solvents that could be um, legislated out the door by the EU. It's genuinely not a nice material and there's no one going to try and argue otherwise. So mm -hmm. uh, I think we're looking at being greener and sustainable. And you know, obviously, there is that economic factor in there if we can crack it. At the moment, we're looking at there is a performance differential between aqueous and NMP in favour of NMP, and uh, we're doing our best here uh, to narrow that down to nothing. 
Fascinating. Well, best of luck with with that work. One of the well, the other things I just want to draw out of this conversation and just explore in a bit more detail is this concept of nano materials versus bulk yep. materials. How that has played out and the the kind of work that's being done in the nano field, which is really propelling things forward in relation to cathodes. Yep, on cathode uh, on nano and cathodes, it's by and large, the phosphates, where it makes a big difference, where people talk about particle size and crystallite size. So this is where you you start to get the, the lab coat on and start heading to your X-ray diffraction machine. So on the crystallite size, about 100 nanometers is really where LFP starts to wake up in terms of electrochemical performance. That that's the kind of crystallite size you have to go for. If you were to go with a hydrothermal synthesis, kind of a precipitation pressure type of route of making it, it's easier to achieve that, but it's more costly. Uh, what a lot of people are doing now is going more of a milling type of route. So fundamentally, you will have that kind of small crystallite from the reaction of the lithium with the phosphate or the iron and hydrophoric acid. They mill. It ends up being milled down to sub-micron uh, sizes. This gives better uh, electrodensity uh, as well. Uh, and also because of that, you have a higher, slightly higher surface area, but you, you have to be careful there because you don't want side reactions as well. But it's all about crystallite size has to be on the nanoscale for LFP. For things like NMC, where people are looking at polycrystalline and single crystalline, longer range order uh, and not really going into the nano works better. Uh, for that. It, with the layered oxides, it seems to work better with longer range ordering, which means moving away somewhat from nanoscaling. If people don't really want, you don't want to mill that down to the same extent that they are now with LFP. We're talking about, uh, so we're about cathode chemistry here, and it's fascinating, and I'm and, and, and re- really enjoying this. What, are there any implications to the cathode of changes in anode chemistry? If we're moving from graphite to silicon anodes, does that have any implications at all for cathode chemistry, or is it neutral? I, I would say it's somewhat neutral. So on the cathode, for me, I stand to be corrected. You, you would look at silicon on the anode side, be that additive amounts, or there are companies now looking at almost going up to pure silicon. One, if you want to go very thin in terms of your layers of cathode and anode, but also if you want to go very thick on the cathode, and then you're going to need a little bit of silicon on the anode side. So what you do on the cathode may influence what you do on the anode side, but because you do it to the anode side, I don't think it has a real effect on the cathode. You know, the move to solid state and things like that. I mean, does that have any bearing on what you're working on in terms of cathode chemistry? Cathode chemistry, again, you can work with what you want. So you would be putting down a cathode layer still, and that probably would be one of the ones that we've discussed. What you may put on top of that cathode layer is what's called a catalyte layer. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a transition phase into your electrolyte. So you want to get kind of a phase matching. It, it, it'll help with that expansion and contraction in the cathode on lithiation and delithiation. So it's like a compensator for that. And you could have that as you go yeah, from cathode into the electrolyte. 
But in terms, you probably will end up with an NMC type of chemistry in there because you're trying to get the capacity, but you could put LFP there just as equal. So what we're talking about currently is primarily LFP, NMC, and some Spinel technologies. If we were having this conversation in 2030, you know, what kind of technologies would be talk- would we be talking about then, do you think? Uh, I think the LFP and the NMC will still be there. Um, I think if you look at predictions, they're even saying LFP is going to grow over the coming years. I think sodium ion will come in as an, a technology. It's here. You'll have seen announcements recently from Northvolt and CATL. Um, I think for a company like FAM, sodium ion is very much in, in focus. In, you know, we're, we're looking at energy storage and uh, sodium ion will, will be able to service that. Um, I think solid state or quasi-solid state, so people looking at gel polymer to give more safety aspect to it will be there as a technology. Silicon, definitely, on the anode uh, side. I know we're talking cathodes today, but just to say in terms of technology. And solid-state batteries will be somewhere. In terms of cost with them, I think is going to be the the factor. If people go all solid-state, so when they say that, they mean ceramic the whole way through. Uh, and it's the production uh, of those materials and the cost of some of the elements within. For me, it's people getting smarter with the, the slurry process and how the electrode is made and it's savings that can be made on cost there then will bring down that cost. You know, the cost per kilowatt hour that people are talking about is both um, the, the raw materials, be that the uh, cathode, active material, additive, binder, but also the process of how you turn that into a cell. Just one thing, just pick up from that from that answer. You mentioned LFP will grow. What's the specific reason, if you like, that LF, LFP is is likely to be on the ascent? Infrastructure. Uh, I think uh, across Europe, you're seeing more and more charge stations pop up. The as I said earlier, LFP has good re- rate retention, so capacity retention on on rate increase. So e- that means you can charge that battery pretty quickly. So even if the range, say, in an EV uh, is a bit lower, if infrastructure grows, which is planned, then you can charge quickly. So that uh, range anxiety, I think, will disappear because of ease of being able to charge the car. Therefore, LFP is cheaper than NMC. Therefore, I think there'll be a trend towards it. You start to see it now with a lot of the offerings coming out of China and Tesla with I think the Tesla S is an LFP based battery inside in it as well. So that's why I think there will be that growth in that chemistry. Well, that's a pretty good place to leave it. Yeah, really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. That's been a really fascinating conversation, fascinating journey through in as much as we can in half an hour and where we are today with uh, with cathode materials. I really appreciate it. Uh, no problem at all. It was a pleasure. The Battery Technology Podcast is a copyrighted GSE Media Limited production. For more details of how to reach us, you'll find our contact details in the show notes or at our website, www.batterytechnologypodcast.com.